Section 29 of The Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Luna. The Plain Speaker. Opinions on Books, Men, and Things by William Hazlitt. Section 29 on people of sense people of sense as they are called give themselves great and unwarrantable airs of the rest of the world if we examine the history of mankind we shall find that the greatest absurdities have been most strenuously maintained by these very persons who give themselves out as wiser than everybody else the fictions of law the quibbles of school divinity the chickenry of politics the mysteries of the cabala the doctrine of divine right and the secret of the philosopher's stone all the grave impostures that have been acted in the world have been the contrivance of those who set up for oracles to their neighbours the learned professions alone have propagated and lent their countenance to as many perverse contradictions and idle fallacies as have puzzled the wits and set the credulous thoughtless unpretending part of mankind together by the ears ever since the distinction between learning and ignorance subsisted it is the part of deep investigators to teach others what they do not know themselves and to prove by infallible rules the truth of any nonsense they happen to take in their heads or choose to give out to amuse the gapping multitude what every one felt and saw for himself the obvious dictates of common sense and humanity such superficial studies as these afforded a very insufficient field for the exercise of reason and abstruse philosophy in the view of the demeanour grave-looking spring-nailed velvet-pored green-eyed despisers of popular opinion their object has regularly been by taking post in the terra incognita of science to discover what could not be known and to establish what could be of no use if it were hence one age is employed in pulling down what another with infinite pomp and pains has been striving to build up and our greatest proof of wisdom is to unlearn the follies and prejudices that have been instilted into us by our predecessors it took ages of ingenuity of sophistry and learning to incorporate the aristotelian or scholastic philosophy into a complete system of absurdity applicable to all questions and to all the purposes of life and it has taken two centuries of metaphysical acuteness and boldness of inquiry to take to pieces the cumbrous disproportioned edifice and to convert the materials to the construction of the modern french philosophy by means of verbal logic self-evident propositions and undoubted axioms a philosophy just as remote from truth and nature and setting them equally at defiance what a number of parties and school have we in medicine all noisy and dogmatical and agreeing in nothing but content and reprobation of each other again how many sects in religion all confident of being in the right able to bring chapter and verse in support of every doctrine and title of belief already to damn and excommunicate one another yet only one out of all these pretenders to superior wisdom and infallibility can be right 
the conclusions of all the others drawn with such laboured accuracy and supported with such unbending constancy and solemnity are and must be a bundle of heresies and errors how many idle schemes and intolerant practices have taken their rise from no better foundation than a mystic garment a divining rod or pythagoras golden thigh when baxter the celebrated controversial divine and nonconformist minister in the reign of charles the second went to preach at kidderminster he regularly every sunday insisted from the pulpit that baptism was necessary to salvation and roundly asserted that hell was paved with infant skulls this roused the indignation of the poor women of kidderminster so much that they were inclined to pelt their preacher as he passed along the streets his zeal however was as great as theirs and his learning and eloquence greater and he poured out such torrents of texts upon them and such authorities from grave councils and pious divines that the poor women were defeated and forced with tears in their eyes to surrender their natural feelings and unlightened convictions to the proofs from reason and scripture which they did not know how to answer yet these untutored unsophisticated dictates of nature and instinctive affection have in their turn triumphed over all the pride and casuistry and merciless bigotry of calvinism we hear it said that the inquisition would not have been lately restored in spain but for the infatuation and prejudices of the populace that is after power and priestcraft have been instilling the poison of superstition and cruelty into the minds of the people for centuries together hoodwinking their understandings and hardening every feeling of the heart it is made a taunt and a triumph over these very people so long the creatures of the government carefully moulded by them like clay in the potter's hand into vessels not of honour but of dishonour that their prejudices and misguided zeal are the only obstacles that stand in the way of the adoption of more liberal and humane principles the engines and establishments of tyranny however are the work of cool plotting specious heads and not the spontaneous product of the levity and rashness of the multitude it is a work of time to reconcile them to such abominable and revolting abuses of power and authority as it is a work of time to wean them from their monstrous infatuation we may trace a speculative absurdity or practical enormity of this kind into its tenth or fifteenth century supported story above story gloss upon gloss till it mocks at heaven and tramples upon earth propped up on decrees and councils and synods and appeals to popes and cardinals and fathers of the church all grave reverend men with the regular clergy and people at their side battling for it and others below schismatics and heretics punging it till in the din and commotion and collision of dry rubs and hard blows it loses ground as it rose century by century is taken to pieces by timid friends and determined foes totters and falls and not a fragment of it is left upon another a text of scripture or a passage of ecclesiastical history is for one whole century torn to tatters to very rags and wrangled and fought for as maintaining the doctrine of the true and catholic church in the next century after that the whole body of the reformed clergy lutherans calvinists arminians get hold of it 
wrest it out of the hands of their adversaries, and twist and torture it in a thousand different ways, to overturn the abominations of Antichrist. In the third, a great cabal, a clamour, a noise like the confusion of Babel, jealousies, feuds, heart-burnings, wars in countries, division in family, schisms in the church arise, because this text has been thought to favour a lax interpretation of an article of faith necessary to salvation, and in the fourth century from the time the question began to be agitated, with so much heat and fury it is discovered, that no such text existed in the genuine copies. Yet all and each of these, popes, councils, fathers of the church, reformed leaders, Lutherans, Calvinists, independents, Presbyterian sects, schisms, clergy, people, all believe that their own interpretation is the true sense, that compared with this fabricated and spurious faith of theirs, the pillared firmament is rottenness and earth's base built on stumble, and are so far from being disposed to treat the matter lightly, or to suppose it possible, that they do not proceed on solid and undubitable grounds in every contradiction they run into, that they would hand over to the civil power, to be consigned to a prison, the galleys, or the stake, as it happened, any one who demurred from a single instant to their being people of sense, gravity, and wisdom. Sense, that is, that sort of sense which consists in pretension and a claim to superiority, is shown, not in things that are plain and clear, but in deciding upon doubts and difficulties, the greater the doubt, therefore, the greater must be the dogmatism, and the consequential airs of those who profess to settle points beyond the reach of the vulgar. Nay, to increase the authority of such persons, the utmost stress must be laid on the most frivolous as well as ticklish questions, and the most unconsciousable absurdities have always had the stoutest sticklers, and the most numerous victims. The affectation of sense so far, then, has given birth to more folly, and then more mischief than any one thing else. Hence we may, perhaps, be able to assign one reason why those arts which do not undertake to unfold mysteries and inculcate dogmas generally shine out at first with full lustre, because they start from the vantage-ground of nature, and are not buried under the dust and rubbish of ages of perverse prejudice. Pibical critics were a long time at work to strip Popery of her finery, muffled up as she was in the formal disguises of interest, pride, and bigotry. It was like peeling off the coats of an onion, which is a work of time and patience. Titinian, on the other hand, which our Protestant painters are sometimes amazed at, saw the colour of the skin at once, without any intellectual film spread over it. Raphael painted the action and passions of men, without any indirect process as he found them. The fine arts, such as painting, which reveals the face of nature, and poetry, which paints the heart of man, are true and unsophisticated, because they are conversant with real objects, and because they are cultivated for amusement without any further view or interference, and please by the truth of imitation only. Yet your people of sense, in all ages, have made a point of scouting the arts of painting and music and poetry, as frivolous, effeminate, and worthless, as appealing to sentiment and fancy alone, and involving no useful theory or principle, because they afforded them no scoop, 
no opportunity for darkening knowledge, and setting up their own blindness and frailty as the measure of abstract truth and the standard of universal property. Poetry acts by sympathy with nature, that is, with the natural impulses, customs, and imaginations of men, and is, on that account, always popular, delightful, and at the same time instructive. It is nature moralizing and idealizing for us, inasmuch as, by showing us things as they are, it implicitly teaches us what they ought to be, and the grosser feelings, by passing through the strainers of this imaginary, wide-extended experience, acquire an involuntary tendency to higher objects. Shakespeare was, in this sense, not only one of the greatest poets, but one of the greatest moralists that we have. Those who read him are the happier, better, and wiser for it. No one, that I know of, is the happier, better, or wiser for reading Mr. Shelley's Prometheus Unbound. One thing is that nobody reads it, and the reason for one or both is the same, that he is not a poet, but a sophist, a theorist, a controversial writer in verse. He gives us, for representations of things, rhapsodies of words. He does not lend the colours of imagination and the ornaments of style to the objects of nature, but paints gaudy, flimsy allegorical pictures on gauze, on the cobwebs of his own brain, gorgons and idris and chimeria's dire. He assumes certain doubtful speculative notions, and proceeds to prove their truth by describing them in detail as matters of fact. This mixture of fanatic zeal with poetical licentiousness is not quite the thing. The poet describes what he pleases as he pleases. If he is not tied down to certain given principles, if he is not to plead prejudice and opinion as his warrant or excuse, we are left out at sea, at the mercy of every reckless fancy-monger who may be tempted to erect an ipse dixit of his own by the help of a few idle flourishes and extravagant epithets, into an exclusive system of morals and philosophy. The poet describes vividly and individually, so that any general results from what he writes must be from the aggregate of well-founded particulars, to embody an abstract theory, as if it were a given part of actual nature, is an impertinence and indecorum. The charm of poetry, however, depends on the union of fancy with reality, on its findings that tally in the human breast. And without this, all its tumid efforts will be less pernicious than vain and abortive. Plato showed himself to be a person of frigid apprehension, with eye severed and beard of formal cut. When he banished the poets from his republic to corruptors of morals, because they described the various passions and affections of the mind. This did not suit with that Procrustes' bed of criticism on which he wished to stretch and loop them. But Homer's imitations of nature have been more popular than Plato's inversions of her, and his morality is at least as sound. The errors of nature are accidental and pardonable. Those of science are systematic and incorrigible. The understanding or reasoning faculty presumes too much over her younger sisters, and yet plays as fantastic tricks as any of them, only with more solemnity, which enhances the evil. 
we have partially seen what rights she has on the score of past behaviour to set up for a strict and unerring guide the haughtiness of her pretensions at present full of wise souls and modern instances is not the most unequivocal pledge of her abandonment of her old errors to bring down this account then from the ancients to the moderns people of sense the self-conceited wise are at all times at issue with common sense and feeling they formerly dogmatized on speculative matters out of the reach of common apprehension they now dogmatize with the same headstrong self-sufficiency on practical questions more within the province of actual inquiry and observation in this new and more circumscribed career they set out with exploding the sense of all those who have gone before them as of too light and fanciful a texture they make a clear stage of all firmer opinions get rid of the mixed modes of prejudice authority suggestion and begin de novo with reason for their rule certainty for their guide and the greatest possible good as a sine qua non the modern panoptic and christomathic school of reformers and reconstructors of society propose to do it upon entirely mechanical and scientific principles nothing short of that will satisfy their scrupulous pretensions to wisdom and gravity they proceed by the rule and compass by logical diagrams and with none but demonstrable conclusions and leave all the taste fancy and sentiment of the thing to the admirers of mr burke's reflection on the french revolution that work is to them a very flimsy and superficial performance because it is rhetorical and figurative and they judge of solidity by barrenness of depth by dryness till they see a little farther into it they will not be able to answer it or counteract its influence and yet that there were a task of some importance to achieve they say that the proportions are false because the colouring is fine which is bad logic if they do not like a painted statue a florid argument that is a matter of taste and not of reasoning some may conceive that the gold the sterling bullion of thought is the better for being wrought into rich and elegant figures they are the only people who contend that it is the worse on that account those crude projectors give in their new plan and elevation of society neither princes palaces nor poor men's cottages but a sort of log-houses and gable-ends in which the solid contents and square dimensions are to be ascertained and parcelled out to a nicety they employ the carpenter joiner and bricklayer but will have nothing to say to the plasterer painter paper-hanger upholsterer carver and gilder and etc so that i am afraid in this fastidious and luxurious age they will hardly find tenants for their bare walls and skeletons of houses run up in haste and by the job their system wants house-warming it is destitute of comfort as of outside show it has nothing to recommend it but its poverty and nakedness they profess to set aside and reject all compromise with the prejudices of authority the allurements of sense the customs of the world and the instincts of nature they will make a man with a quadrant as the tailors at laputa made a suit with clothes they put the mind into a machine as the potter puts a lump of clay into a mould and out it comes in any clumsy or disagreeable shape 
that they would have it they hate all grace ornament elegance they are addicted to a true science but sworn enemies to the fine arts they are a kind of puritans in morals do you suppose that the race of the iconoclasts is dead with the dispute in land's time about image worship we have just the same set of moon-side philosophers in our days who cannot bear to be dazzled with the sun of beauty they are only half alive they can distinguish the hard edges and determine outlines of things but are alike insensible to the stronger impulses of passion to the finer essences of thought their intellectual food does not assimilate with the juices of the mind or turn to subtle spirit but lies a crude undigested heap of material substance begetting only the windy impertinence of words they are acquainted with the form not the power of truth they insist on what is necessary and never arrive at what is desirable they refer everything to utility and yet banish pleasure with stoic pride and cynic slovenliness they talk big of increasing the sum of human happiness and yet in the mighty grasp and extension of their views leave hardly any one source from which the smallest ray of satisfaction can be derived they have an instinctive aversion to plays novels amusements of every kind and this not so much from affectation or want of knowledge as from sheer incapacity and want of taste show one of these men of narrow comprehension a beautiful prospect and he wonders you can take delight in what is of no use you would hardly suppose that this very person had written a book and was perhaps at the moment holding an argument to prove that nothing is useful but what pleases speak of shakespeare and another of the same automatic school will tell you he has read him but could find nothing in him point to hogarth and they do confess there is something in his prints that by contrast throws a pleasing light on their utopian schemes and the future progress of society one of these pseudo-philosophers would think it a disparagement to compare him to aristotle he fancies himself as great a man as aristotle was in his day and that the world is much wiser now than it was in the time of aristotle he would be glad to live the ten remaining years of his life a year at time at the end of the next ten centuries to see the effect of his writings on social institutions though posterity will know no more than his contemporaries that so great a man never existed so little does he know of himself or the world persons of his class indeed cautiously shut themselves up from society and take no more notice of men than of animals and from their ignorance of what mankind are can tell exactly what they will be what can we reason but from what we know is not their maxim reason with them is a mathematical force that acts with most certainty in the absence of experience in the vacuum of pure speculation these secure alarmists and dreaming guardians of the state are like superannuated watchmen enclosed in a sentry box that never hear when thieves break through and steal they put an oilskin over their heads that the dust raised by the passions and interests of the countless ever-moving multitude may not annoy or disturb the clearness of their vision they built a penitentiary and are satisfied that diet street bloomsbury square will no longer send forth its hordes of young delinquents an airy of children 
the embryo performers on locks and pockets for the next generation. They put men into a panopticon, like a glass hive, to carry on all sorts of handicrafts. So work the honeybees, under the omnipresent eye of the inventor, and want and idleness are banished from the world. They propose to erect a Christomatic school, by cutting down some fine old trees on the classical ground where Milton thought and wrote, to introduce a rabble of children, who, for the Greek and Latin languages, poetry and history, that fine pabulum of useful enthusiasm, that breath of immortality infused into our youthful blood, that balm and cordial of our future years, are to be drugged with chemistry and apothecary's receipts, are to be taught to do everything, and to see and feel nothing, that the grubbing up of elegant arts and polite literature may be followed by the systematic introduction of accomplished barbarism and mechanical quackery. Such enlightened geniuses would pull down Stonehenge to build pig styes, and would convert Westminster Abbey into a central house of correction. It would be in vain to point to the arched windows, shedding a dim religious light, to touch the deep, solemn organ-stop in their ears, to turn to the statue of Newton, to gaze up the sculptured marble on the walls, to call back the hopes and fears that lie buried there, to cast a wistful look at Poet's Corner. They scorned the muse. All this would not stand one moment in the way of any of the schemes of these retrograde reformers, who, instead of being legislators for the world, and stewards to the intellectual inheritance of nations, are hardly fit to be parish beadles, or pettifogging attorneys to a litigated state. Their speech bewrayeth them. The leader of this class of reasoners does not write to be understood, because he would not make fewer converts if he did. The language he adopts is his own, a word to the wise, a technical and conventional jargon, unintelligible to others, and conveying no idea to himself in common with the rest of mankind, purposely cut off from human sympathy and ordinary apprehension. Mr. Benson's writings require to be translated into a foreign tongue or his own, before they can be read at all, except by the adepts. This is not a very fair or very wise proceeding. No man who invents words arbitrarily can be sure that he uses them conscientiously. There is no check upon him in the popular criticism exercised by the mass of readers. There is no clue to propriety in the habitual association of his own mind. He who pretends to fit words to things will much oftener accommodate things to words to answer a theory. Words are a measure of truth. They ascertain, intuitively, the degrees, inflections, and powers of things in a wonderful manner, and he who voluntarily deprives himself of their assistance does not go the way to arrive at any very nice or sure results. Language is the medium of our communication with the thoughts of others. But whoever becomes wise becomes wise by sympathy. Whoever is powerful becomes so by making others sympathize with him. To think justly, we must understand what others mean. To know the value of our thoughts, we must try their effect on other minds. There is this privilege in the use of a conventional style that there was in that of the learned languages. A man may be as absurd as he pleases without being ridiculous. 
his folly and his wisdom are alike a secret to the generality if it were possible to contrive a perfect language consistent with itself and answering to the complexity of human affairs there would be some excuse for the attempt but he who knows anything of the nature of language or of the complexity of human thought knows that this is impossible what is gained in formality is more than lost in force ease and perspicuity mr bentham's language in short is like his reasoning a logical apparatus which will work infallibly and perform wonders taking it for granted that his principles and definitions are universally true and intelligible but as this is not exactly the case neither the one nor the other is of much use or authority thus the maxim that mankind act from calculation may be in a general sense true but the moment you apply this maxim to subject all their actions systematically and demonstrably to reason and to exclude passion both in common and extreme cases you give it a sense in which the principle is false and in which all the inferences built upon it many and mighty no doubt fall to the ground madmen reason but in what proportion does this hold good how far does reason guide them or their madness err there is a difference between reason and madness in this respect but according to mr bentham there can be none for all men act from calculation and equally so so runs the bond passion is liable to be restrained by reason as drunkenness may be changed to sobriety by some strong motive but passion is not reason that is does not act by the same rule or law and therefore all that follows is that men act according to the common sense of the thing either from passion or reason from impulse or calculation more or less as circumstances lead but no sweeping metaphysical conclusion can be drawn from hence as if reason were absolute and passion a mere nonity in the government of the world people in general or writers speculating on human actions form wrong judgments concerning them because they decide coolly and at distance on what is done in heat and on the spur of the occasion man is not a machine nor is he to be measured by mechanical rules the decisions of abstract reason would apply to what men might do if all men were philosophers but if all men were philosophers there would be no need of systems of philosophy the race of alchemists and visionaries is not yet extinct and what is remarkable we find them existing in the shape of deep logicians and enlightened legislators they have got a menstrual for dissolving the lead and copper of society and turning it to pure gold as the adepts of old had a trick for finding the philosopher's stone the author of st leon has represented his hero as possessed of the exilir vitae and aurum potabile the author of political justice has adopted one half of this romantic fiction as a serious hypothesis and maintains the natural immortality of men without a figure the truth is that persons of the most precise and formal understandings are persons of the loosest and most extravagant imaginations take from them their norma loquendi their literal clue and there is no absurdity into which they will not fall with pleasure they have no means or principle of judging of that which does not admit of absolute proof 
and between this and the idlest fiction they perceive no medium as those artists who take likenesses with a machine are quite thrown out in their calculations when they have to rely on the eye or hand alone people who are accustomed to trust to their imaginations or feelings know how far to go and how to keep within certain limits those who seldom exert these faculties are all abroad in a wide sea of speculation without rudder or compass the instant they leave the shore of matter-of-fact or dry reasoning and never stop short of the last absurdity they go all lengths or none they laugh at poets and are themselves lunatics they are the dupes of all sorts of projectors and impostors being of a busy meddlesome turn they are for reducing whatever comes into their heads and cannot be demonstrated by mood and figure to amount to a contradiction in terms to practice what they would scout in a fiction they would set about realizing in sober sadness and melt their fortunes in compassing what others consider as the amusement of an idle hour astolfo's voyage to the moon in ariosto they criticized sharply as a quaint and ridiculous burlesque but if any one had the face seriously to undertake such a thing they would immediately patronize it and defy any one to prove by a logical dilemma that the attempt was physically impossible so again we find that painters and engravers whose attention is confined and riveted to a minute investigation of actual objects or visible lines and surfaces are apt to fly out into all extravagance and rhapsodies of the most unbridled fanaticism several of the most eminent are at this moment swedenborgians animal magnetisms and etc the mind as it should seem too long tied down to the evidence of sense and a number of trifling particulars is wearied of the bondage revolts at it and instinctively takes refuge in the wildest schemes and most magnificent contradictions of an unlimited faith poets on the contrary who are continually throwing off the superfluities of feeling or fancy in little sportive sallies and short excursions with a muse do not find the want of any greater or more painful effort of thought leave the ascent of the highest heaven of invention as a holiday task to persons of more mechanical habits and turn of mind and the characters of poet and sceptic are now often united in the same individual as those of poet and prophet were supposed to be of old end of section twenty nine recording by sandra luna